Welcome to uh, session two of our introductory course on capitalism in the age of COVID. And um, this is a course which is looking at thinking about capitalism, the general experience of capitalism, but also particularly, you know, what, what it's like to experience it in 2020 and, and how it affects all our experience of everything else that's going on. <laughs> so I'll just briefly define what I mean by capitalism, which I think I'm going to do every time. And my general understanding of that term is something initially quite simple, which is just capitalism is basically the practice of trying to accumulate huge amounts of profit. And then a sort of in a broader terms, it is any kind of like when we talk about being in a capitalist society or capitalist social relations, we're talking about things being organized in a way in which that is the overriding objective of almost all the social activity we're engaged in. So, you know, whether we're making videos or we're studying at you know, university or you know helping people in a hospital, ultimately everything is supposed to be justified with reference to whether it makes somebody rich or not and that is that's the sort of defining feature of living in a capitalist society um and specifically today we're going to talk about the relationship with uh, between capitalism and race and racism and issues of race and the way in which we experience you know racial difference and racial sort of power relations so to that end we've invited uh, adam elliott cooper a sort of friend of mine and a colleague on to talk about it but i think we should i think i should say like you know to kick off just to be clear about you know where we're coming from that personally i'm against the racism i kind of don't i'm uh, i don't think it's i think it's bad <laughs> so <laughs> and i presume you're coming from the same place on that issue uh, yeah also critical racism yeah. <laughs> so we're going to be biased from the start in assuming racism is bad um I'm going to, but uh, so I think, but I think I want to start off before we talk about these very general issues, the very and more abstract issues about the relationship between, between capitalism and racism. Talk about one of the issues of the experience of the pandemic that's obviously been uh, arguably surprising to a lot of people and quite central, which is the fact that certainly here and in the US, I haven't really monitored that situation elsewhere. You know, people of colour have been affected like noticeably, you know, demonstrably worse than other groups of people. Now, I mean, why is that? Do you think? Um, I think that the pandemic has um, illustrated a number of the kinds of inequalities that already existed in our society, but maybe revealed them in a more um, visible way for a lot of people. Um, and so I think one of the I think there are a number of complex reasons why people of colour have been more likely to be infected or um, uh, die from COVID-19. I think um, one of them, of course, is the fact that um, many people who are people of colour work in frontline services, work in social care, in healthcare, work in um, uh, maybe taxi services or other retail services. A number of different um uh, I guess jobs where people are like where they like to come in contact with other members of the public or indeed people who have already been infected. But of course, the other reason is related to other kind of social issues that relate to uh, racial inequalities, things relating to housing and, and access to healthcare, um, where people uh, from uh, racially minoritised groups are again more likely to have to live in substandard or overcrowded housing, um, or not have access to uh, GPs or other healthcare facilities for a range of different reasons relating to racial inequality as well. Um, so I think there's there's probably a number of different reasons why uh, people from racially minoritised groups are, have been adversely affected by this pandemic. And I think it goes beyond uh, inequalities in healthcare and speaks to questions relating to the economy and, and, and work and society and uh, more generally as well. 
So what you've touched on there, and you've used this phrase racially minoritized group several times, so we should several times, so we should probably unpack that. I mean, that implies that, that that's a phrase which is making clear that the very fact that somebody I mean, we're used to talking about black and ethnic minority people or ethnic or racial minorities. And of course, but that term is making clear that actually even the even defining someone as in a minority is is actually, you know, is a sort of is a political act in a way, or it's, or it's a classificatory act that, you know, black people aren't in a minority everywhere. You know, Asian people are definitely not in a minority everywhere. So, you know, on a, I mean, on a planetary scale, you know, everywhere we're all, you know, we're both ethnic minorities, if that's the classification you want to use. So, so I think it's important to make that clear to people that, and it's, and that's something we're going to think about is the way in which we'll actually, the, you know, people are racial categories are not sort of natural. They're not organic. They don't just exist in the world. But we'll sort of come back to that history, I think. And also, it seems like well, one of the things implicitly you've touched on there is the relationship between race and class, and the fact that well, you know, there's a complex relationship between the way in which people that were defined as belonging to certain ethnic groups actually experience poverty and the fact that and this is a big debate in left theory and left strategy well i mean you know there's an extreme position which says well actually there's not really any such thing as race at all we shouldn't really talk about it even even talking about it sort of makes it exist whereas in fact we should just we should only focus on the fact that what affects people's life chances their quality of life is whether they're poor or rich you know, what their class status is and that and that actually we shouldn't even think about race at all as a separate issue i mean there's people like i mean effectively that's the position taken by people like adolf reed in, in the united states at the, at the moment so i mean where do you come down on that uh, issue. Uh, so I think the main critique of that kind of what we might call vulgar Marxism uh, comes from a tradition which we might call black Marxism, uh, which wasn't founded, but was probably most uh, is most well known uh, through the work of uh, Cedric Robinson, who uh, died a few years ago. And what Cedric Robinson argues is that rather than capitalism slowly proletarianizing more people, which basically means, means it slowly um, incorporates more and more people into its workforces, which makes us more and more similar. In fact, what he argues is that racial capitalism actually differentiates people. It makes people different. And it does this, one of the ways in which it does this anyway, is through racial classifications. So rather than race being an, an identity, um, you know, one day everyone in Africa decided they were black, what actually happens is capitalism expands from Europe through imperialism, goes to places like the Americas, Africa, and categorizes the different groups of people that live there. And through those categories, they're able to more effectively control, more effectively uh, coerce, more effectively exploit, and, and very often uh, uh, enact violence and kill these different uh categories of people which we now call races and so that's why i use the phrase racially minoritized because people aren't naturally uh, racial minorities they are made into minorities by the social political and economic system in which we live in order to more effectively exploit control and enact violence upon them I mean, when we're talking about race, arguably, we can argue about this, but it's, it's not the subject today. Arguably, there's a difference from talking about, say, you know, sexuality or gender, and that you know, there's a whole debate over to what extent sexuality or gender has any biological reality, but there are very obvious reasons why some people think it does, whereas race just doesn't have any biological status. I mean, there's no, I mean, the concept of race as it was sort of came 
came to be used from the 17th, 18th century onwards, and as people still use it today, sort of implied that, well, there's some relationship between people's behaviour or their personality or their capacities, which is related to know whether they look more like you or more like me. And we just know now from the genetic science, it's nonsense. Like, there's no more correlation between those things and just ha- the hair color, different hair colours that white people have or whatever. So race just doesn't exist in a, in a biological sense. And on some level, the basic idea of racism is just, oh, there are these sets of people called races and, you know, that, um, that, that, that are sort of you know, different species of human, which is just, it's just, gene- just in scientifically, we know is nonsense. On the other hand, the fact that, from about the 16th, 17th century onward, or really from the end of the 15th century, people from Europe went out around the world taking other people's land, making people slaves, and justifying it on the basis of this story they told themselves and other people. It said, well, it's okay for us to do this because these people are a different race to us. That's produced a situation in which the lived people's actual lives are defined by whether they're categorised according to these racial groups or not. So racism beca- race becomes a sort of social reality and a historical reality, even though it's never a, a biological reality. Uh, yeah, totally. I mean, on, on a, in a very crude way, um, I guess it's easy for people to sit, think that race is biological because they'll say, well, if two black people have a child, that child will be black. If two white people have a child, that child will be white. So, of course, race is biological. But, of course, race, r- what, what we consider to be a racial category shifts and changes in different contexts. So, for instance, um, an example I always tell my students is the example of Barack Obama. Barack Obama is African-American in the United States would be racialized as a colored in South Africa, but we would be racialized as one of the many derivations of brown if he lived in Brazil, would be a red man in Jamaica, um, would be this thing we have in Britain called mixed race if he lived in Britain, um, and would be racialized as um, a Muzungu or white if he lived in uh, Kenya, where his dad's from. Barack Obama's Biology doesn't change when he moves from social context to social context, but the way in which race is socially constructed changes in all of these different contexts. And that's why we have to understand race as being something which is a social construct or more accurately, a colonial construct rather than something which is scientific. I mean, really, uh, you know, the course is supposed to be about capitalism and, and capitalism as we know it is generally thought to have begun really in what historians call the early modern period, like maybe the 17th century, maybe a bit earlier, which is basically the first time when you start, you get a situation where there's enough opportunity for rich traders, merchants, employers of other people's labour to, to accumulate fortunes on a scale which enable them to really, you know, to challenge the power and authority, say, of kings or, you know, la- you know great landowners or what have you. And and it's re- and an important point there is that, that that history really begins with the history of colonialism. It begins with people going out from Europe and basically just taking the land, the resources, and you know the enslaved bodies of uh, of uh, of people you know in these, in these other parts of the world. And because one of the, I mean, it, this is a bit theoretical, but you know one of the theoretical questions which is always uh, you know we're thinking about is the question of whether you can whether capitalism whether living in a capitalist society like the society we live in today necessarily produces racism and you can make an argument well you know there are black capitalists you know there are white exploited people but obviously on a certain level not just capitalism 
but the whole political philosophy of what we call liberalism, which is really the dominant idea, you know, way of thinking about the world in most capitalist societies, which says that, well, basically everybody, uh, yeah, the, the, everybody is an individual competing with other individuals and the, the job of a government is to make sure that everybody can do that sort of fairly. All of, the, all of that ought to because it ought to promote the idea that everybody should just be judged as an individual or treated as an individual and allowed to compete with others as an individual, it ought to just promote, it ought to be sort of race blind. It ought to promote a culture and a society in which, you know, people are not, uh, you know, not judged according to the, you know, the colour of their skin. But, and in theory, that might be possible. But historically, the historical reality is, this is how I always put it anyway, you can tell me if you think is right or wrong is well historically we don't know if that's possible because it's never happened because that is not how actual capitalism came into existence actual capitalism came into existence um when a load of white people or people who would end up being categorized categorizing themselves as white went out from europe and stole a load of other people's land you know that's how it started and we don't and it and to some extent and that history has continued to mark our experience of it um, ever since do you agree with that? Um, yeah, I think. Yeah, I think. I think broadly speaking, that's that's generally correct. Um, and I think, I think this relationship between race and I think it's interesting that you mentioned this point about you know there are black capitalists. So how can we have this thing called racial capitalism? Uh, that re- how can capitalism reproduce racism if there's lots of wealthy um, uh, people of color across the global south? Um, and so I think it's in. I think it's. important for us to think about the ways in which racism is not a mathematical science. It doesn't create very clear, um, uh, well-trodden, easily identifiable boundaries between the the powerful class uh, group of people and the oppressed group of people is far more slippery. That's one of the things that makes it so powerful. Um, so while we can look back at um, chattel slavery in the Americas and you know be be very clear, oh look, you know the black people are enslaved, the indigenous people are being exterminated, the white people are, are the are the settlers and the colonizers. You know that's clearly racism. What we have today, I think, is. Um, in many ways, a far more sophisticated um, form of racism, what we might call um, a, a form a form of racism, which is able to um, adapt to the, um, I guess, the demands of modern liberalism, the demands of modernity, which which say that, as you mentioned, um, people should be uh, judged upon their merit and we should live in a, a meritocracy where working hard um, uh, provides you with uh, material gain and wealth. And so, in order for capitalism to survive, in order for capitalism to thrive in a world in which these kinds of ideals proliferate and become popular, it, it's it's been able to um, shift and, and merge um, with these ideals in order to produce um, rather than um, a, a, a colonial situation across Africa and parts of Asia where uh, white people uh, are actually extracting wealth from from uh, the, the subjugated populations there. Instead, you have um, uh, dictators or people in positions of governments across the global south who often um, work in, 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 in line with uh, multinational corporations or uh, Western governments and, and other uh, capitalist in- interests, which still reproduce a form of racial capitalism so we still see the underdevelopment of the global south and the overdevelopment of the global north. We still see uh, racial capitalism through the hyper-exploitation of 
uh, the, of workers in the global south and the relative and the re and relatively uh, um, uh, less exploitative forms of work in wealthier, higher income nations in the global north. So we still see those patterns being reproduced, but never through very clear cut, easily identifiable mathematical scientific lines. It's something social, therefore it's something far slippery and messier and harder to pin down. Right, yeah. And of course, historically as well, we see those that kind of differentiation within populations being one of the key mechanisms, even in the global north, even in the sort of quote-unquote highly developed capitalist economies, one of the ways by which communities have been divided from each other and, and really the you know the possibility of working people developing relations of solidarity and you know challenging the authority of capitalists has been limited. I mean I would go so far as to say you go right back to the 19th century. I mean you referred to the idea of proletarianization earlier. That's you know the proletariat in Marx's terms is the working class as we defined it in the last session actually it's just it's everybody who has to sell their labor to live and Marx and one of the things that Marx thought was going to happen he thought capitalist society would sort of proletarianize as we put it everybody because everybody would almost everyone a tiny minority of capitalists would end up on the money with all the money and you know everybody else would end up you know just having to sell their labor and feeling exploited and and I mean on certain level that's in certain ways that's true you can look at professions like the teaching profession and sociologists will say well actually teachers thought of themselves as this privileged group who was sort of part of the middle class and you know almost closer to the sort of capitalist class at one time in history and now which I don't think is really true but that's another argument and now they you know and now they um you know, now they're in unions and they recognise themselves as exploited workers and they become sort of proletarianised. And that's all true, sort of true. But one of the other things that's happened, which isn't exactly what Marx thought was going to happen in the 20th century, is that there's been these all kinds of proliferating differences between people, you know, produced. And, you know, so that we think of ourselves as, you know, I'm a, you know, I'm a hipster who lives in, you know, East London, you know, drinks, you know, cappuccinos, or I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a quote unquote working class beer person, you know, in a northern town who you know, drinks beer, and actually they're earning the same money, they might even be working for the same company, and this makes it very difficult for people to kind of recognise their potential common interest. But the fundamental, I mean, the most frequently used mechanism to divide people, going right back to the 19th century, is racism. I mean, back in 19th century London. You know, the, I mean, Marx said, well, the thing which is really preventing a working class movement from emerging is anti-Irish racism amongst English uh, amongst English uh, workers. And then and anti-black racism has just been used again and again, especially in the United States, to really basically to say to white workers who are poor and exploited themselves, oh, yeah, you, well, you might be sort of poor and exploited, but you're better off than those black people. So you should be happy. Uh, yeah, so um, uh, W. E. Du Bois, um, a famous African American uh, sociologist, talks about this in um, in his thesis, "The Wages of Whiteness," and about how uh, whiteness provides this immaterial wage for people racialized as whites, um, even if their mate actual material lives um, have uh, far, are far more similar with other working class black people than they are with uh, wealthier white people. But I think it's important for us also to um, to connect the ways in which racism is used to, to 
divide oppressed people and, and, and the way in which racism is used to try to thwart of, um, attempts at solidarity um, and connect that to the ways in which racism is fundamental in a number of different ways as well that we've I guess we've already touched upon the ways in which um, racism can be used and racial categories can be used to identify some people's undeserving of freedoms and civil liberties the way that racism can be used to identify certain people as being morally degenerate as violent as criminal and therefore um, uh, in need of um, more harsh forms of state discipline and other forms of um, uh, uh, structural violence. And so the racism plays so many different important roles in, in um, not simply dividing people, but controlling and coercing and exploiting them, that it, 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 it's, it's become almost fundamental to the functioning of capitalism itself. And one, I, I guess one more thing that's important is that one of the other ways in which racism is linked to class is through the ways in which um, new forms of exploitation, new forms of control, new forms of violence are often introduced through through racism. So, for instance, um, the expansion of Britain's prison system, right? Britain's prison system has almost doubled since the early 1980s. Um, and one of the ways in which um, uh, the state has been able to justify this massive expansion in the prison system is through the idea that there are new forms of crime, there are new forms of criminality that are more violent, more deviant, more immoral, and more dangerous than anything Britain has ever seen before. And racism is a really important way um, um, for them to be able to do this. Um, if, if, um, pe if people are watching, just think about what you think about what pops into your head when you hear the word terrorist or gangster or crime, right? So, um, so, right, but of course, despite the fact that our prison system has been, has doubled over the last, um, uh, almost doubled anyway, over the last 40 years, um, and racism has been a really fundamental justification for that expansion, the majority of people who are imprisoned are working class white people, right, are lower, inco lower income people who are white. So whilst racism is really fundamental for creating the environment in which the states can use new forms of exploitation and control and violence, racialized minorities minorities who are the targets of this racism are not the only people who are affected by it, even if they are disproportionately affected. It ends up being used against the whole swathe of oppressed groups of people. We know. I think everybody will probably understand the context of the Black Lives Matter movement. It's a movement that begins in the United States, which is a protest movement against uh, the very ob obvious violent racism of the police. Although people tend to think that policing is just a sort of something any modern society will do in order to prevent crime or to protect property. Again, the, the actual truth is the actual history of modern policing is really linked to the history of you know, wealthy populations, wealthy groups trying to control poor groups, and especially, and most of the sort of, a lot of the techniques and systems of modern policing were actually developed in the colonies, weren't they? they were developed, you know, in order in order to subjugate um, you know non you know, non-white populations of people who were being effectively enslaved. Yeah. So, um, so on the one hand, certainly the history, most of British policing historically hasn't taken place in the British mainland. Um, it's taken place in Britain's colonies, um, and and I think thinking about that colonial policing is really helpful because in the colonies there was no distinction between the military. <laughs> the police. So while we see, we consider there to be this militarization of the police taking place over the last 30 or 40 years here on the British mainland, what I think we're actually seeing is seeing British policing becoming more akin to what policing has 
British policing has been like in many of its colonies. So you see this, um, of course, in the roots of British policing, which um, uh, where uh, the first kind of bobbies, um, Robert Peel, um, who was uh, who first founded uh, the, uh, many of the police uh, forces uh, in Britain's colony of, of Ireland. Um, but many of the different kinds of tactics and logics of policing actually emerge in the colonial situation, uh, whether it be uh, Kenya, Malaya, um, uh, uh, what's now Yemen, and what's now Sri Lanka, um, uh, Palestine and elsewhere. Okay, great. And so with reference to this specifically to the sort of explosion of activism around Black Lives Matter this, this summer, like why, why do you think it, it happened this summer? And was it related to the pandemic or was it despite the pandemic? Um, I think there are probably three or four, I'm sure there are many reasons, but I'd say the three or four for me key reasons um, are firstly, of course, I think a lot of people are very angry about the pandemic, about the way in which it's been handled or better better mishandled, I would say, um, by governments both in the United States and here in Britain, but other countries as well. I think the second thing, of course, is the fact that um, the governments that we have in here in Britain and in the United States are far more uh, nationalist, right-wing, and in many ways overtly racist and bigoted um, today com in comparison to the last wave of Black Lives Matter protests that we saw um, in 2014 uh, and 2015. And so I think, again, uh, people are angry, not simply um, at policing, but are angry at the, at the political situation in which we see. And I think it's worth uh, restating that these are the largest anti-racist protests in British history ever. Um, and we've seen protests not just in large uh, cities across the country, but also in small towns and villages in relatively rural um, and not very multicultural areas. And I think for me, what that's about is about not people. This is about people not saying, you know, we're sick and tired of the police racism and harassment that we see every single day, because it's unlikely that they see it. But I think what they are saying is that this 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 political culture that we're supposed to be the, the constituents of this nationalism this more naked form of racism this kind of uh, xenophobia isn't something we want to be a part of and so i think it also speaks to that wider political context of of nationalism which has been popularized um, in the in recent years and i think and i think the third thing of course is the visibility of these particular instances of police violence the fact that people are watching this footage um, of people not simply being killed in broad daylight but effectively being tortured to death um, on a public street and i think the 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 human response to seeing another human being being um, uh, treated in that way is um, is is anger and rage, um, and as we've seen, collective resistance. Moving on from BLM and and look, thinking about the history of his, you know, the historic history of forms of uh, anti-racist politics. Like what can we do about? What, <clears throat> what do we do to challenge racial capitalism? So one of the main demands of this Black Lives Matter movement has been around defunding the police or police abolition. Um, so and that's quite a scary concept for lots of people, right? So what, what does that what does that possibly mean? So what what the what the movement is effectively arguing is that the police and prison system has been continually expanding um, for a very long time, at least half a century um, here in Britain. But we haven't seen any in, in improvements in public safety. We haven't seen any harm reduction. And what they argue is that actually the police aren't effective at all in making our communities safer or providing us or, pro or providing us with uh, any reduction in harm within our lives. And in fact, what we should be thinking about are more preventative measures and dealing with the problems that lead to people coming into contact with the criminal justice system. So what they're arguing for is, is um, for uh, 
community-led mental health services, for better and affordable council housing, for well-paid, secure and, and, and um, unionised jobs, um, for a humane um, uh, border system, i.e. getting rid of or significantly eroding the power of our border regime, um, improving people's access to healthcare and social care and youth services. All of these types of things can help the most vulnerable people in our society before they come into contact with the criminal justice system. Because if we look at our prison system, it's, we, we see a massive over-representation of people who've experienced domestic violence or child abuse, have experienced homelessness or poverty, have experienced unemployment or school exclusion, have special educational needs or experienced um, uh, mental health problems. All of these types of problems can be addressed without the use of the police and prison system if we make the kinds of community-led social investments that enable the, those vulnerable people to live far better, far more fulfilled um, and less oppressed and, and, and harm-filled lives. And so whilst the, the, we see that these protests are on the surface, a form of resistance and reaction to police racism. What the demands are, are, are is a radical reimagining of, of a world in which we don't rely on state violence to try to solve the, our most, some of our most serious social problems. And in doing that, what, what that vision argues for isn't, importantly, you know, the end of all police and prison systems tomorrow but an erosion of our reliance on the power and resources of the police and prison system and the investment and the empowerment of community-led solutions to the kinds of social problems that lead to people coming into contact with the criminal justice system. And I guess the final thing is that this radical vision, therefore, isn't just about racism. It's about racial capitalism. And, and therefore, it's a, it's a vision which uses racism, sees what racism does, but then envisages a world which isn't simply free from racism, but, is, but begins to erode all forms of exploitation and violence. Okay, thanks, Adam. That was brilliant. And um, if you're watching this before uh, September the 9th, then uh, join me. We'll be having a Zoom call to discuss these issues uh, on September the 9th at six o'clock. Um, and the uh, next the next video in this series will be talking about to Jacob Mukherjee about why the rent is so high. <laughs>